Little Heroine of Castlewood by Sheldon Kelly. First, 14-year-old Karen Hartsock fought an inferno to save the lives of her brother and sisters. Then she fought to save herself. Karen Hartsock, asleep in the dawn hours of June 13, 1982, thought she was dreaming. Then she heard clearly her father's desperate shouts as they rang out through their old log farmhouse in the rugged Appalachian foothills of Castlewood, Virginia. Fire! The pretty 14-year-old leapt from her bed and ran down the hallway. Fire and smoke spurted from the walls. The nearby stairway was almost engulfed in flames. Horrified, she began yelling for her two younger sisters and brother. In seconds, the upstairs was filled with thick smoke. Eleven-year-old Norma Kay stumbled from her room, sobbing hysterically. Karen, barely 1.52 metres tall, wrapped her arms around her sister and pulled her fiercely down the fiery stairway to safety. While her father, partially invalided from recent open-heart surgery, smothered the flames on Norma Kay's pyjamas, Karen fought her way back up the stairs. She knew that 12-year-old Loretta and 9-year-old Johnny, who had cerebral palsy, would perish if she didn't reach them. God help me, she screamed as her polyester nightgown burst into flames. The walls of the hallway were now fully ablaze. Karen gasped for air, sucking in acrid smoke. As she groped blindly for Johnny's bed, The bedroom wall erupted into flames, lighting the way to her sleeping brother. Frantically wrapping him in a blanket, she carried the youngster into the inferno-like hallway. The fire now raged along the full length of the stairway, with flames leaping nearly to the ceiling. Muffled explosions shook the house. There was a flash around Karen's head and her long auburn hair caught fire. Holding Johnny with one arm, she struggled to snuff out the flames, screaming as they burned into her scalp. Suddenly, a section of thick, burning wallpaper toppled onto her head and shoulders. Still holding Johnny with one arm, she knocked it away. Then another section fell, and another. The pain seemed unbearable. Fearing unconsciousness, Karen tightened her hold around Johnny and rushed down the stairs. Strangely, the pain now began to subside. Indeed, she felt almost euphoric, invincible. Near the bottom of the stairs, she saw her father. Here, she shouted, heaving her brother with all of her might. I've got him, Claude Hartsock yelled. Now, you come on, come on. Instead, Karen turned back towards the wall of fire. Riri, Riri, she shouted Loretta's nickname, unaware that her sister had escaped earlier. A second later, the banister overhead collapsed, pinning Karen beneath a pile of burning debris. Claude Hartsock, his weakened heart palpitating wildly, pulled his daughter from underneath the banister and out into the yard. There, his wife, Rachel, flung her own body on top of Karen's in an effort to smother the flames. Still, Karen struggled to get up. I have a job to do. I need to get Riri. Just then, the entire house gushed up in an immense fireball. Karen's older brother, David, who had escaped by climbing down an antenna outside his bedroom window, ran to meet the ambulance he had called. Sobbing, Riri and Norma Kay knelt with their mother around Karen's charred body. 
Karen was dying. At the University of Virginia Hospital Burn Centre in Charlottesville, doctors worked feverishly to save the little heroine. Second and third degree burns covered more than 80% of her body. A tube was inserted in her windpipe to help her breathe. While a respirator pumped oxygen into her lungs, burnt portions of her arms, breast and neck were removed and all of her fingers amputated. She was given a less than 10% chance of surviving. For days, Karen remained in critical condition. The first of many skin grafts, the surgical placing of undamaged skin over a burnt area, was performed three days after her admission. During the time it took to heal, her body remained susceptible to deadly bacterial infections. Still, incredibly, she clung to life. Although heavily sedated, she struggled to remain conscious, calmly enduring her painful treatment. Unable to speak because of the tube in her trachea, her scorched eyes covered with medicated cream and gauze, Karen managed to send messages by mouthing her words, gesturing and pointing with her splintered bandaged hands to letters on a card. I'm fine, she signalled to an incredulous medical staff. Thank you. Thank you. One day, Karen frantically motioned that she wanted something. After countless questions and signals, the nurses realised that she wanted Riri. Although she had been told repeatedly that her sister was alive, Karen suddenly feared that she was being spared from the awful truth that Riri had perished. Minutes later, Riri sat beside her, touching her lovingly. Please get well, big sister. We're all so lonely without you. Karen tried to rise, waving her hands gleefully. Almost immediately, her condition began to improve. Still, recovery would be a painful process. Twice daily, she was taken to the tank room for debriding, the removal of dead skin with tweezers and scissors, considered by many doctors to be the most painful of all medical procedures. Although sedated with pain-killing drugs, some screaming patients have to be physically restrained as nurses cut and pick, stopping only to wash blood and dead tissue down the tank table's drain. Yet even during this horrifying treatment, Karen never faltered. Moaning slightly, her head turned away. She managed to communicate, I'm okay. I know you don't mean to hurt me. Thank you. By mid-July, Karen had undergone her second graft. Although her condition had stabilised, it would be weeks before she would be beyond the easy reach of death. Suddenly, her persistent struggle to remain conscious intensified. She feared anaesthesia, even sleep. She began signalling a desperate message, one that not even her family could interpret. Pastor Fred Patrick joined the bedside vigil, watching the hopeless exchange of questions and signals. He knelt by her side. Do you want a Bible, Karen? She nodded. Then, for the first time, she was able to speak, in a whisper. Yes, please. A Bible was placed next to her pillow, and the minister returned with tape recordings of the Bible. As the first tape began playing, Karen waved her hands ecstatically, and once more, doctors noted marked improvement. Yet a new dimension to Karen's suffering lurked in the future. With her eyes covered, she had been unable to see her face or body. Now, as nurses removed her eye covering, 
she saw the purplish, twisted stubs where her fingers had been, and her arms covered with thick scar tissue. Then she saw her torso, neck and face. Weeping, she told the nurses, I want to die. Karen's condition began to deteriorate. Doctors and nurses tried to console her, to no avail. Even her mother failed to dissuade Karen from wanting death. Hearing the news, Fred Patrick rushed to her room. Karen turned her head, trying to hide her face from the minister. There's no reason to go on, she whispered, tears streaming down her scarred cheeks. You are the bravest person I've ever met, the pastor announced. God created you for a special purpose. You've already proven that. You cannot give up now when the beauty of his spirit is beginning to show in you. He quoted her a passage. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Karen's tears became tears of joy. The minister had explained exactly what she recalled thinking on the night of the fire. She had a job to do then, and she had one now. Karen's will to survive came back even stronger than before. Someday, somehow, she told her family cheerfully, she would fulfil her childhood dream of becoming a nurse. On August 4, 52 days after the fire, Karen's name was removed from the critical list. Several weeks later, she was transferred to a rehabilitation centre, where she began rigorous therapy treatment and resumed her high school studies. Although she had undergone eight major skin grafts and was scheduled to receive many more, plus reconstructive surgery, she felt happy. Her hair was growing back, she could walk unassisted, her voice, although it would remain hoarse, was stronger, her vision clear. On March 20, 1983, after eight months of intensive therapy and hundreds of operations, Karen was released. The entire family was waiting to take her home to a newly rented farmhouse in the familiar Appalachian foothills. Offers of free treatment from several hospitals were kindly rejected. Karen wished to remain close to her loved ones, especially her father, who had been recently told that he had terminal lung cancer. Together she vowed to him they would fight off the pain. Dressed in elasticised material, a tight-fitting garment covering her arms, torso and face, Karen stayed busy each day giving emotional support to her dying father. Soon the diminutive youngster was once again the family's big sister, advising, scolding and joking with everyone. Even as the reconstructive surgery resumed, Karen's cheerful demeanour remained unchanged. Her high school studies were brought to her each day. She subscribed to nursing magazines, made inquiries about nursing schools and became an outspoken proponent of the rights of the handicapped. Told that she could not return to the local hospital as a volunteer nurse's aide because of her injuries, she asked, who knows how to help injured people better than someone who is permanently injured? In July, Karen was informed that she had been selected to receive both the Young American Medal for Bravery and the Carnegie Medal for Extraordinary Heroism. Karen was amazed. I don't think of myself as a heroine, she said. I just love my family. She continued to assist her father between her own agonising bouts with pain. And on September 8, while she sat alone with him, he whispered, 
I'm sorry, I can't stay and help you. Keep fighting, honey. I love you. Then he died. On October 6, 1983, Karen stood on the steps of the White House as President Reagan decorated her for bravery. I know, Karen, that in one sense your father is not with us today, the President said. But in another sense, I believe with all my heart he is here. And he's very proud. Several weeks later, she was presented the Carnegie Medal in recognition of an outstanding act of heroism. Says Dr. Richard Edlick, Director of the University of Virginia Emergency Medical Services and Burn Centre. Karen is one of those rare and remarkable individuals who will never surrender, whose selfless love and spiritual belief are in themselves miraculous life support systems. Her will and resolve are an inspiration to all burn victims, and her incredible heroism is an inspiration to us all. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.